Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chi-Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Taiwan is blessed with an amazing number and variety of museums. There are some great old ones. You've got the National Taiwan Museum in the 228 Peace Memorial Park, and there are new ones popping up all the time. And then there are like, I don't know, you could call them niche museums, like the Land Reform Museum. <laughs> yes, there is actually a museum dedicated to land reform here in Taiwan in the 1950s. Another niche one is not that far from me, the National Radio Museum in Jai County. A great thing about it is that the museum is the actual building that the Japanese uh, used for radio broadcasting back in the 1930s. Yeah, some museums are in historical buildings, but repurposed. I'm thinking of the Kaohsiung History Museum, for example. That was um, the old city hall of Kaohsiung under the Japanese. One of the best museums we've both been to recently is an aviation museum called the Aviation Education Exhibition Hall, which is in Gangshan, Kaohsiung, near the Air Force Base there in Gangshan. Yes, not that easy to get to, but well worth it. It's slightly confusing, though. There's the Aviation Education Exhibition Hall, uh, which is full of airplanes on display, and there's an Air Force Museum that's nearby. Both should be visited together if possible. However, unfortunately, the Air Force Museum was undergoing maintenance when I was there. But in any case, the Aviation Education Exhibition Hall is this huge interior space. You walk in and really, it's just wow. Yes, wow. Aviation paradise. Beautiful airplanes spread around the large floor space and also numerous planes suspended from the roof magnificent airplanes, and wow display too. Lots of good natural light and good English displays. Which is useful because these aircraft are often not just representatives of some particular type of plane, but they are individual planes with a particular colorful history. So there's great stories behind them. Yeah, perhaps the best examples of that are the five MiGs. These jets look amazing, uh, yeah, but they also have these great backstories. Four of them were flown here by Chinese PLA Air Force defectors. Actually, you did a two-part episode on these defectors. Yeah, season two, episodes 31 and 32. It was uh, Andrew Morris was talking about his book, Defectors from the PRC to Taiwan, 1960 to 1989, The Anti-Communist Righteous Warriors. The anti-communist righteous warriors. I mm. applaud their righteousness, but as I recall, there was a fair amount of gold awaiting these defectors. <laughs> yes, that's true. And not all of them turned out to be heroes. Uh, I suggest if you're interested in listening again, some of these guys ended up getting executed for committing crimes in Taiwan. Anyway, these MiGs in the Gangshan Exhibition Hall were Soviet planes that were in the PLA, or the People's Liberation Army. They date from a MiG-15 fighter, which was flown to Taiwan by defector in 1962. 
The most recent defector plane was a MiG-19 J-6 fighter that came over in 1989. Hmm, that double name, MiG-19 J-6. It's because it was Chinese-built, a Chinese-built plane of the Soviet version. And then there's a MiG-21. The information for the plane says, quote, This particular MiG-21 on exhibition belonged to the Hungarian Air Force. It was confiscated by Kilong Customs, ROC, in 1990 and handed over to the ROC Air Force Museum. Huh? Hungarian Air Force confiscated in Geelong? (laughs) That's odd. I wonder what the story is behind that. Yeah, if anybody knows, please email us something. So many good stories. Um, One of the planes in the exhibition hall, an F-104 Starfighter, was involved in the last downing of a MiG. Yeah, this particular aircraft was one flown by a Captain Shi. When he scored his MiG kill, January 13, 1967, the last deadly cross-strait aerial engagement of fighters, as far as I know. So four ROC starfighters were engaged by 12 MiG-19s. And apparently they shot down two MiGs, and uh, one of the ROC starfighters never came back, believed to have been shot down. But I mean, that number is impressive. Four versus 12. Yep. So, John, we both went to this museum over the span of like a month. And uh, what other airplanes there like stood out for you? The C-47 Skytrain, a real workhorse through the decades. It's also called a Dakota manufactured by the U.S. Douglas Company. It's a military transport version of the civilian DC-3, and I have uh, childhood memories of seeing it and hearing it. Good God, man, how old are you? Well, these were uh, vintage planes uh, flying out of an airport near my home. Okay. The info for the plane says the C-47 is a two-engine plane, capacity of 27 passengers or 20 troops, Yeah, it was reliable and easy to maintain, and it played an important part in World War II, including the hump. Eric, do you want to explain the hump? Okay, so the hump, or the hump airlift, was the aerial transportation of supplies over the eastern Himalayan mountains. So the Chinese nationalist forces, the KMT forces, they were stuck in southwest China, cut off from the coast, no supplies, So supplies were flown in from India to China over the Mm -hmm. mountains. A very dangerous route, but a lifeline for China during the war. And the airlift operations were conducted primarily by the United States Army Air Force, USAAF. And the C-47 was one of the workhorses flying the hump. That particular plane, the C-47 in the exhibition hall, it was assigned as the presidential aircraft in 1947. It was christened Meiling, named after the first lady, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Song Meiling. And after the retreat to Taiwan in 1949, this C-47 served for VIP transportation and temporary maritime search and rescue operations. And speaking of VIP transport, a standout of the exhibition hall is an actual airliner. It's a small airliner, but, you know, it's still an airliner, a Boeing 720, which is a shorter version of the Boeing 707 series. This particular aircraft was the presidential aircraft. Presidential or not, it was a secondhand plane. Launched in 61, 
serving uh, in the U.S. for the Northwest Airlines. The ROC Air Force purchased it and put it into service as the presidential aircraft in 1972, and it was decommissioned in 1991. 1972 to 1991. So let's see, how many presidents would that mean it served? You have Jiang Kai-shek, Yan Jia-gan, Zhang Jingguo, and Li Deng-hui. And as you noted, it was a secondhand plane. It's not the uh, fanciest of things, but um, you can actually go inside the plane and <laughs> pretend you're the president. You can see the lounge, the sleeping quarters, and it's mm-hmm. a, an interesting thing to see. And it only costs 100 NT. You have to take off your shoes and put on these slippers and you can go into the actual plane. It's, it's pretty cool. Yes. During its time of service, the B-720 had perfectly completed 306 flights of VIP transport missions, including seven overseas special missions. But remember, none of those overseas trips involved former President Chiang Kai-shek. Right. He'd vowed not to fly anywhere except back to China. And that plane we're talking about, this uh, presidential plane, it's the biggest plane in the exhibition hall. One of the smallest ones is also incredibly outstanding. Its name, a Curtis Hawk III, a single-seat biplane fighter. So a biplane, two wings, you know, what we associate with World War I, hardly seen in World War II. But this type of aircraft was important in the early ROC Air Force in the days of the Second Sino-Japanese War. So that would be like 1937. And this plane saw battles, um, you know, uh, the Battle of Shanghai, Battle of Nanjing. These Curtis Hawk III planes featured in a a rare victory against the Japanese Army Air Service, uh, their first victory, actually, on August 14th during the Battle of Shanghai. And that would become the ROC Air Force Day, also known as 814 Day. A day worth commemorating, you know. Those brave pilots were outmanned and outgunned. When China stood alone in those bleak years, this humble fighter did what it could to stop the Japanese war machine. Hmm. Imagine going up in a biplane against a Japanese Zero. Yeah, yeah. Not Zeros quite yet in August 1937, but yes, very soon the Hawks were going up against the Mitsubishi A5M fighter, or the Zero as it's better known. And by 1937, I mean, it was time to retire those Hawk 3s. And one year later, 1938, the surviving planes were handed over to the Air Force Academy as advanced trainers. And what were they replaced by? The answer might surprise you because it was Russian planes. Following the Sino-Soviet non-aggression pact in August of 1937, Stalin sent help in the form of planes, instructors, and other, you know, military and economic aid. Yes, Stalin was looking to have the Japanese military machine exhaust itself in China. He wanted to make sure that the Chinese nationalists would not collapse. So this operation began with the deployment of 225 combat aircraft, along with Soviet volunteers. Well, they were called volunteers, though they didn't actually volunteer. They were just told (laughs) to go there. And uh, the number of planes and volunteers would uh, greatly increase over the coming couple of years. And there's a lot of people who know a bit about history who might be thinking, like, weren't the Americans helping the Chinese? You know, the Claire Chenault uh, general and the famous Flying Tigers? 
Right, the first American volunteer group, AVG, uh, of the Republic of China Air Force, nicknamed the Flying Tigers. They were formed mid-1941, and various delays meant they didn't actually get into action until a couple of weeks after Pearl Harbor. And this secret period of Soviet help was called secret because it was secret. They pretended to be private citizens. Initially, they even wore like civilian clothing and family members weren't even informed. And when they went on missions, these Soviet pilots changed into Chinese uniforms. And of course, their planes were marked with Chinese Air Force insignia. For Formosa Files, uh, at least, the most amazing aspect of these Soviet planes flying for the Republic of China was an air raid on Taipei City, Taihoku at the time, in 1938. Okay, so Russians or Soviets bombing Taipei in 1938. That is a surprise. Yep. Uh, Regardless of the nationality of the pilots and planes, yeah, it was a surprise for the people in Taipei too. Mm. Uh, And one person in Taipei at that time was an American called George Kerr. George Kerr would later become famous as the American vice consul here during the chaotic post-war years, and, as many of you know, the author of the book Formosa Betrayed. Yes, Formosa Betrayed, arguably the most important English-language book ever written on Taiwan. George Kerr, he had come to Taiwan in the summer of 1937 after studying in Japan for two years. In Taipei, he taught at a college and a high school. He would leave in 1940. So he arrived in the summer of 1937, which is the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Things were tense in Taiwan or Formosa, but not on like a total full war footing. He says, quote, The principal visible signs of war in the autumn of 1937 were farewell ceremonies for Japanese reservists leaving Geelong to join regiments in Japan before shipping out to the battlefront in North China. Labor conscription had not yet begun, and rationing was not yet a burden, end quote. There's a lot of aviation action at the time, but this is Japanese planes flying from Taiwan to China. The Chinese Air Force was too weak, not able to mount any attacks. But Kerr says defense exercises, mock attacks, and occasional air raid drills at night were staged to remind the Formosan public of, uh, you know, the national crisis going on. He says foreign residents like him had to observe the blackout regulations, but they weren't called out to participate in various neighborhood maneuver things to prepare for air raids. Kerr says on the sunny morning at 11 o'clock, a brief series of shattering explosions shook the air, suggesting military exercises of unusual scale somewhere in the northeastern suburbs. Military planes rose from the Songshan airfield in that quarter and streaked westward. This in itself was not unusual, for there was heavy military traffic on that field every day. Continuing Kerr's account, he says, quote, But two hours later, the city's sirens sounded an alert. The streets were promptly cleared of all ordinary traffic. Civil defense wardens and policemen sped back and forth, and military trucks began to roll in from the barracks area. Troops took up positions along the main avenues, 
machine gun emplacements suddenly appeared at the principal intersections, and sandbagged, barbed wire barriers were hastily thrown up before important buildings in the Central Administrative District. Um, barbed wire and machine guns don't shoot down planes, John. Yeah, machine guns and barbed wire. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, Hmm. Not much faith in their Formosan subjects, despite all the propaganda the Japanese authorities had subjected the local population to. The authorities were nervous how the Formosans would react to this war against their mainland cousins, especially those in Fujian. And if the war came closer to Taiwan's shore, how would the people react? So they were worried they would, like, rise up? Exactly. And Kerr says Taipei was gripped with excitement. No one seemed to know what was taking place. At two o'clock, there was great relief when the sirens sounded the all-clear, and the troops began to withdraw from the streets, leaving only some guards around the principal buildings. The city was swept by rumors as darkness fell, but neither the police nor the air wardens could explain the midday alert and the movement of the troops. Before dawn the next day, every barricade had been removed, and the guns, bayonets, barbed wire had all disappeared. A crisis had passed, and then a brief official statement came out that said only, on the preceding day, a Chinese nationalist plane, piloted by Russians, had dropped a stick of bombs near the Shongshan airfield, and it was driven back across the strait. Eric, did you notice anything strange in Kerr's account? Hmm. Okay, give me a clue. Two hours. Ah, okay. I was distracted by the Russian element, like how did they know that there were Russian pilots? But yeah, of course, it's a two-hour delay between the air raid and the Japanese sounding the air raid alert. Exactly. So during that time, that long delay of two hours, the paranoid Japanese were thinking... Let's take precautions before we uh, alert people in case there's an uprising. Yeah, paranoid indeed. It reminds me of an episode we did, I think, way back in season one about Japanese spy fever. Mm -hmm. Another interesting point from Kerr's account. He says that foreign residents dismissed the Russian pilot uh, detail as a face-saving gesture. Uh, Apparently, no Japanese officer could admit that a Chinese pilot had successfully penetrated Formosa's defense system without warning. But Kerr's knowledge of the raid was, um, I guess, somewhat limited. Let's look at some details from other sources. In Japanese, it was called the Matsuyama Air Raid. Matsuyama is Shongshan in Chinese, as in the Shongshan Airport. Today, it's mostly a domestic airport right in the middle of Taipei City. So to recap, the bombing raid took place on February 23rd, 1938, 11.05 in the morning, targeting the airfield. Soviet pilots flying Soviet aircraft with the blue sky and the white sun of the ROC. The attack was planned by Soviet Air Force Major Pavel Reichagov, in his late 20s, but already a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. Yes, and the reason for the attack was early February 1938, the ROC Air Force headquarters in Wuhan had obtained crucial information. The Matsuyama airport was gearing up for actions against Wuhan, including assembling Fiat BR-20 bombers imported from Italy. This information was shared with the Soviet volunteer group, 
So it was decided the ROC would cooperate and launch a surprise attack on Matsuyama or Songshan in February. It's not sure if it's just a coincidence, but the chosen date for the attack was the Soviet Red Army Day, the founding date of the Red Army. Anyway, the bombing raid would be commanded by squadron leader Captain Fyodor Bolanin, and also involving a joint Soviet-Chinese 12-bomber squadron in Nanchang. Right. Two teams to operate simultaneously. One team consisting of 12 Soviet-Chinese mixed SB bombers based at Nanchang Airport, and another team of 28 SB bombers operated by Soviet pilots based at Wuhan. However, the team from Nanchang uh, deviated from the planned route due to a pilot miscalculation. (laughs) Deviated from the planned route due to a pilot miscalculation? That sounds like a rather polite way of saying they got lost. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, they got lost and they had to abort the mission and, and come back. So just one group, 28 bombers from Wuhan. Yes, and the planes used were the Tupolev Ant-40, uh, also known as the Tupolev SB, two-engine, high-speed bomber. The Tupolev design was quite advanced, but uh, lacked refinement. No decadent comfort for the, the crew. <laughs> no, but they were Soviet, so. But wait, from Wuhan, that's really far. That's, that's a major distance. Did they get some sort of fighter escort? No, too far. It's... About 940 kilometers. Yeah. So as the distance exceeded the range of escort fighters, the bombing mission proceeded uh, without fighter escort. And to conserve fuel, the pilots flew at an altitude of 5,500 meters. It's, uh, you know, low temperature, low oxygen conditions, tough, like I said, to conserve fuel. Uh, Also, they're hiding and the Japanese forces remained unaware. Their fighters did not take off. That meant the air raid proceeded with uh, little hindrance. According to estimates by China and the Soviet Union, a total of 280 bombs were dropped, resulting in the destruction of over 40 fighter aircraft, 10 barracks and three hangars. Matsuyama Airport was completely paralyzed. However, the Japanese army reported to the Japanese cabinet that the damage was minimal and the affected residents were few. So clearly, um, someone is lying. Yeah, the truth, I suspect, is somewhere in between. There must have been more damage than curses. In his words, it was a minor affair. A few Formosans were killed or wounded and a few houses smashed. But yeah, obviously more than that. But for the first time in in history, the Imperial Japanese domain had been subjected to an airborne attack by an alien force. So Mm -hmm. it had to have some psychological benefit. Kerr says, quote, The significance was not lost among young Formosans of college age who promptly collected and kept as prized secret souvenirs small fragments of metal picked up at the Shongshan site. Here was a hint that Japan was vulnerable, end quote. Yeah, it's a bit reminiscent of the Doolittle Raid of April 1942, that first American air operation to strike Japan. Oh man, if you guys don't know about the Doolittle Raid, please look it up on Wikipedia. It's fascinating. It caused relatively minor damage to Japan, but it demonstrated that the Japanese mainland was vulnerable to American air attacks. And it's just such a cool story. They took off, but they knew they couldn't turn around, so they had to land in China One of them ended up landing in the Soviet Union. Uh, Yeah, just a wonderful story. Look up the Doolittle Raid. 
any raid where you don't have enough fuel to get back home is going to be exciting. Yes. And those brave men, man. Whoa. Yeah. So as for Formosa, the Japanese didn't expect an attack. And I think they hadn't engaged in proper camouflage and air defense mechanisms at the airfield. But all 28 bombers safely returning to their base in China without any loss. I wonder why fighters from other airfields couldn't be launched. Hmm. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Our episode is raising as many questions as we've answered. Absolutely. And this 1938 raid is a subject for someone to pick up and run with, isn't it? You know, a a PhD dissertation, a a book, even a journal article, a a documentary. Yeah. Anyway, we got to wrap things up. Um, Let's look at the consequences of this raid. The Japanese on Formosa obviously strengthened their defenses. If the Russians and Chinese are telling the truth, it was a great success and a lot of damage occurred and they didn't even lose a plane. So you would think they would repeat it. Not on Taiwan, but the nationalist Chinese seem to have been encouraged by the raid. So uh, actually, the English wiki page for this bombing raid gives a clue. This wiki page, apart from failing to mention the Soviets, says the aircraft involved was the American bomber, the Martin B-10. Yeah, I saw that. Wikipedia is usually very good when it comes to uh, Taiwan and China history stuff. But in this case, it helps to look at the Chinese version of Wikipedia. Yeah, I think that uh, plane mix-up is because there was a follow-up raid in May 1938, but it was two B-10s with Chinese pilots flying the first air raid on mainland Japan, an unescorted nighttime raid over cities in Kyushu. Uh, The two B-10s dropped uh, lots of leaflets alerting the Japanese people to the atrocities their soldiers were committing in China. Interesting. And I was also reading about what happened to the Russian leaders. So the guy who led the raid... He would go on to have a successful military career and die at a respectable age. His commander, Pavel Reichagov, wasn't so lucky. A guy in his late 20s, but a veteran of the Spanish Civil War when he came out to China. Well, he was killed along with his wife in one of these uh, periodic uh, mass Soviet purges. Yeah, tortured and executed in 1941. And again, John, you managed to end on a less than happy note. Um, Anyway, well, one one thing. Um, If any of you out there have more information about this sort of stuff, please email us at formosafiles at gmail.com. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye.